Joel three seventeen through 21. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Achaeus. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. Well, welcome, everyone. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. As people have said, if you're new, welcome. Um, if you're looking for seats, there's so much room near me in the front. Only a little offended no one sat right here. Mildly offended. Uh, there's also seats over there in the corner if you would like a safe distance from me. Um, if you want to follow along, you can grab your phone or have a Bible and look on the screen. We'll be in the end of Joel chapter 3. For the last five weeks, we've been in a series walking through the book of Joel. And if you've been with us throughout this time, like kind of walking through Joel and reading along with Joel, then you might have started to notice that there's a bit of a rhythm to Joel. Maybe you could say stages or kind of like narrative progressions to what's happening throughout the book of Joel. And so as we entered into Joel, you see right at the beginning, the prophet Joel begins by sounding an alarm to the people of Israel. That's the first stage or the first part of this rhythm. He sounds an alarm to show Israel that the, the way they live is painful and destructive and damaging. He's trying to call them into attentiveness to the, the damage and the trauma and the pain and the hurt of their own sinful behavior to say, like, there is consequences to this kind of living. It hurts. It's painful. So he begins by sounding an alarm. And then that alarm moves into invitation. What do the people of Israel do when they hear this alarm? Well, Joel says you respond and you turn to God, which leads into the next stage. And if you turn, you come and you find yourself healed. And so Joel fills the book with these beautiful images of who God is, that he is gracious and slow to anger and merciful. So you have warning, you have invitation, you have healing, and then right in the middle of Joel, you have this really big, beautiful moment where Joel's like, he's not only going to heal, he's also going to fill you with his spirit. Fill you with his presence, fill you with his power so that you can join in on the thing that God is doing in the universe. And so if you were to break it into just like three simple words, you could say that there's a rhythm to Joel of calling, of filling, and of joining. And you see it show up in Joel, you see it show up in the biblical narrative, and it becomes a rhythm because in chapter 3, it starts again. But not with the people of Israel. In chapter 3, it begins with the world. You look at verse 1 through 13, again, Joel begins to sound an alarm. But to the people of the universe, the people of the world, in verse 14 and 16, God offers an invitation to turn and to be healed. And in verse 17 through 21, you get this picture of the world being healed and filled with the presence of God. 
I think this rhythm is helpful to see laid out in Joel, but then also as we kind of work through the larger biblical narrative, because as we see this little picture, we get a picture of what God is up to. Like, what is the thing that God is doing in the world? What is he trying to accomplish? What is he about? What is his mission? What is his narrative? I think that can often get lost when we're reading the Bible because there's so many strange stories and weird moments. And you're like, is that donkey talking? Why are we reading about this? And it's like pretty easy that we can get lost in the story of the Bible. And so Joel lays this rhythm out very helpfully. And in the rhythm, we begin to see what is God up to? And here's what we see that God is on a mission to renew the entire world by restoring his presence through a people called and empowered by his spirit. That God is on a mission to renew the world by restoring his presence to the world through a people called and empowered by his spirit. This is what we see playing out in the book of Joel, but even more so, this is the grand drama that runs throughout the entire biblical narrative. You see it when Abraham is called out of Babel and God's like, hey, I'm gonna enter into relationship with you. I'm gonna form a covenant with you. I'm going to bless you. And then I'm actually gonna send you back into the world that I just called you out of so that you might be a blessing to the world there. You see it with the church in the New Testament. And maybe the easiest example in the biblical narrative to see it with is the people of Israel. They're literally called out of Egypt in the Exodus. And they're given, as a symbol of God's presence with them, the temple, which is this physical building that lives in the midst of Israel, and it represents that God is with them, that God is connected to them, that they are filled in a unique way with the presence of God. And out of that unique connection and unique proximity to God, Israel is supposed to live uniquely. So God gives them Torah or teachings or instructions. And it's filled with all of these strange rules, like only one fabric garment. You're like, why is that supposed to happen? It's because their way of life is meant to be a reflection of their unique relationship with God. They live like in the center of the world on all these trade routes. They live in unique relationship to God. And then they're supposed to live uniquely so that the world might know what it looks like to live in relationship with God. So they're not supposed to have a standing army because you're supposed to have deep reliance upon God. You're not supposed to have uh, exploitive tax systems or take interest on loans because you're supposed to have a unique relationship with God. And those ways of life, those practices, those habits flow out of the presence of God. Because Israel lives in unique proximity to Israel or to God, they have a unique way of life. Now, Joel has those images in mind. The temple, the purpose of God, the mission of God. He has all those images in his mind when we come to Joel chapter 3, especially as he writes this last section. You can see it in verse 17 and 18. In verse 17, Joel writes, Then you, Israel, you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion. I'm present in Zion, my holy hill, which is where the temple is. And Jerusalem will be holy and never again will strangers invade her. Now Joel is saying this because if you've been with us in Joel, Israel rejected 
their connection to God, their role in being unique because of their relationship with God. And so Joel puts this promise at the end that Israel, so you know one day God's presence will dwell with you and there's nothing that can shake it, nothing that can change it. I will be present, I will be with. And the image is a temple. That's what Israel thinks of when they think of how is God gonna be present? Oh, he's gonna be present in a temple. But then Joel adds this next piece to say, what is gonna happen when God's presence is with Israel. He says this in verse 18. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. So he says one day, God's gonna restore his presence And that hope, that story of Israel living in unique relationship with God and filling the world with his presence, oh, that's actually going to come true. And it looks like this, this beautiful picture of God's presence dwelling and then the subsequent renewal that comes from his presence. But it leads to an interesting question because Joel has this statement in this passage. He says, in that day. And if you're a reader of Joel or today, the question is, well, when is that day? Well, and if you're with us, Joel actually already gave us some clues to answer that question. If you go back just a few verses in Joel 2, verse 28, he says something similar. Joel says, afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see vision, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my, my spirit in those days. So Joel is like kind of linking some ideas together. He's like, in that day, when my presence dwells with you, it'll actually be in your people. And I'm gonna pour out my spirit in those days. Now, Joel still doesn't answer the question of when those things are gonna happen, but we get, at least as we're reading Joel, a bit of a, like some narrative clues. These two things are linked together. But the nice thing about linking these together for just like sake of the narrative is that in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter picks this moment up in Acts chapter 2 and says that this prophecy that Joel is making, that this people of God will be filled with the Spirit of God, is definitively being fulfilled. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit falls onto the disciples as they're in the upper room. They run out into the streets and people are like, oh, they're drunk, and Peter's like, no, it's 9 a.m. No one's drunk at 9 a.m. She'd be like, well, never been to Arizona State. Um, <laughs> that's so mean. Nobody needed that. He's like, no, we're not drunk. He's like, this was to fulfill what the prophet Joel spoke. He's like, this is the moment. Like, this thing, this hope, this promise is definitively being fulfilled in this moment. And Paul, the apostle, will pick that same idea up and expand it even further in Ephesians 2, verse 19 through 22. He'll say this. He says, you, church, are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built 
together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So this notion of God, he's going to bring his presence and out of his presence, renewal and restoration will begin to flow into the world. Joel doesn't have any conception of when that's going to happen or even of what that's going to look like. And then when we come to the New Testament, Peter's like, it's happening now. And Paul goes even further to say, all of that promise of a new temple is happening in the church. Paul is saying that we have been filled by the Spirit of God and formed into a living temple through whom God's renewal is intended to extend into the world. That we have been formed into that hope at the end of Joel chapter 3, a living temple through which God would move and extend restoration and renewal into the entire world. That that would be the church. So what does that mean? It's kind of a beautiful imagery, but what does it mean more practically? What does it mean for us to be the living temple of God through which renewal spreads into the world? Well, first, it means that we are to be a people of God's presence. Right? If the temple is marked by God's presence, if that's the chief thing, and the whole promise is built on this notion that God's going to fill us with his spirit, then we are supposed to be a people of God's presence, filled with his spirit. But the thing about that is that just being filled with the spirit of God does not mean that we are a people of presence. Just the mere fact that we've been filled with God's spirit does not mean that we are a people of presence. Israel had the temple. It lived in the midst of their society. It was filled with the presence of God, a symbol, a sign that God was with his people. And yet Israel constantly rejects God and his presence. We can do the same. Having God's presence in us or with us does not mean that we are then his presence. To be a people of presence means we live aligned with God's spirit in us. In fall, we walked through a series out of uh, Galatians chapter 5, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul kind of begins that section with this phrase, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Now, he's assuming that the people he's talking to are filled by the Spirit, but then he's also calling them to say like, oh yeah, but you can disalign yourself with what God is doing in you, or you can align yourself with what God is doing in you, and you can walk by the Spirit. So walk by the Spirit. And then what happens In that letter, when Paul's like, if you walk by the Spirit, you will produce fruit. Oh, renewal. A picture of life and abundance. So people of presence are a people who walk by the Spirit. This is another metaphor, so it's not that helpful in terms of explaining how do we do it. But maybe the easiest way of thinking about how do we walk by the Spirit is this. That we trust that God's Spirit is in us, and then we risk How do we walk by the Spirit? How do we live as the people of presence in the world? Oh, we trust that God is in us, that God is in the community, that he is moving around us, and then we risk where God calls us to. And so what that can mean practically is, oh, I trust that God has empowered me for the practices of confession and repentance. 
Right? We see these practices show up in Scripture. This is just like a practical example. We see these practices show up in Scripture that when we sin, how do we deal with our sin? Well, the first thing we do is we confess and we repent. And that can feel so intimidating or weird or risky. And so the very first thing that we do is we trust that God's Spirit is in us so that when we do those practices, that He's doing something through them. That something is actually happening in our life as we practice what God calls us into. And then we risk in the practice. We trust that God's Spirit is in us and we risk where He calls us to. We trust that God is in us when we pray together. And then we risk and pray together. We trust that God's Spirit is in us when we share the story of Jesus together. And then what do we do? We share the story of Jesus together. To walk by the Spirit means to trust that the Spirit is in us and to risk, to practice presence. So the first thing we have to do is to trust that God's Spirit is in us and risk. The second thing that we have to do to be a holy temple is Recognize that we are in this together. Paul in Ephesians says that we are built together into a a living dwelling. Like, yes, God's presence is in us individually, but we are built together communally. God calls, I mean, like, just follow the story. God calls a people. He forms a people. He sends a people. Jesus, in the Gospels, when he sends his disciples into the the cities to preach his story, he always sends them in pairs. God is forming a people, not individuals. And so to be a living dwelling for God means to be formed as a people, to do this as a people. Jesus says that when we meet together in his name, together in his name, he's with us. I think because alone, it is so much easier to be swallowed up and consumed by the world. And because the practices that God calls us to live into as the church are by their very nature communal. They're not individual. You can't do table alone. You can't do confession and repentance alone. You can't do discernment alone. Those are things that require the community to participate in life with you. And I wonder even if if we were to rethink of all the practices in light of what if they were built for the church, not the individual. What if telling the story of Jesus in the world was actually built to be communal, not just individual? How much would that change the way that we practice? So we have to remember that we are built together into a living dwelling. So we need partners who together with us walk in the Spirit and live as a living temple. So it might sound risky, but who is your partner? Partners. Do you have a partner at work, a partner at school, a partner in your neighborhood where you are dreaming and praying and discerning together what it looks like to join God's work and extend renewal to those spaces? Do you have partners in your neighborhood? Who are you praying renewal with? Who are you walking in the way of the Spirit with? Who are you built together with? And third, to be a living temple means that renewal spreads into all places. So we are called into all places. The different images that you get in the temple, 
Joel has one at the end of chapter 3, but Ezekiel has one. And in each of those pictures, you get this like, beautiful moment where the streams that flow from the temple, they go into the world. And so in Joel, it goes into the valley of Acacias, and it begins to bring flourishing and life and abundance. In Ezekiel, I think it spreads into the entire world, and it brings life to droughts and difficult places. And the picture is intended to evoke for us this idea that God's presence is spreading to all places, that there is nowhere off limits, even the places that seemed difficult or distant or incongruent with what God was doing, that God's renewal through his presence is actually spreading into those places. Now, Jesus doesn't use the same language, but in Acts 1.8 or at the end of the Gospels, Jesus calls his disciples to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. That presence and renewal is supposed to spread into the ends of the earth, through the temple, through his people. And so that means for us that we are called to go to all places. There isn't a space in our life or our city or our world where we are not called to join what God is doing. There's not a space of our life where we are not called to join in what God is doing. It's such a beautiful image because it means that that God's presence is bringing renewal to all the different places of our lives to our work and our families and our friendships and our neighborhoods and our communities, that God is intending to bring renewal to all of those spaces. You say, what would renewal look like in those spaces, in your spaces? We have a lot of people who work in the arts. What does the practice of presence and renewal look like in the arts? Or what does it look like in your neighborhood? Or what does it look like at your job and your school? What are the spaces in your life that you are being called to join God? And what could renewal look like in those spaces? I love this because I think, like, sometimes I think that when we, as Christians, kind of evaluate what it is, what it means to be Christians, I think, um, for lack of a better phrase, it can feel boring. I don't know if you ever thought that. You're like, I don't know, this thing is a little boring. But I feel like when we get this bigger picture of what God is intending to do in the world, then all of a sudden it expands our imagination to be like, God is inviting us into this creative process of participating in renewal. And so the question that he's asking us is like, what does it look like in your own spaces to to open up living temples in those spaces to participate in renewal? There's no easy answers to that in the text. There's practices, there's God's promises, and then there's a calling to go into those spaces. And then our job is to be creative in how we join God in that space. And so what if you just, just to begin to imagine what it could be like? Like what if you and some partners, you went to work, you went to a bar down the street, or you start thinking about art differently, and you enter into those spaces as guests. You begin to pray and pay attention to what God is doing in those spaces. Maybe you get to know people. You're there long enough to be present. They're long enough to be known. They're long enough to be relational. And as you're there, one of you begin to practice presence, having meals, asking for forgiveness, repenting, telling the story of Jesus. What might happen in those places? What might happen in those places of your life if you were to 
open up a living temple through which renewal could extend. Through the simple practices of going together, practicing presence, opening up a temple. That's what it means to be the church. Joel gives us actually a little bit of a picture of what could happen at the end of Joel chapter 3. He begins to compare what Israel is supposed to look like, what the people of God are supposed to look like, versus what the world around them looks like. And he says this. He says, But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose lands they shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem through all generations. Joel is comparing the renewal of presence to the violence of absence. One is lush and full of abundance. The other looks like drought. Joel, I think, as we do, live in a world that is deeply damaged by the violence of absence. Absence because people have rejected God's presence and absence because a people have rejected being God's presence. And so we live in a world that is damaged by absence. And Joel names that absence and violence and war and destruction. At the beginning of Joel, their slavery is named. It's like that is the violence of absence. And all of that is still true today, but it also manifests in smaller places in our own lives broken relationships, abuse, the inequalities of our neighborhood. I think even the divisiveness of our politic that has consumed the American church is an evidence of absence, not presence. And what Joel is showing us throughout his whole book, but especially right now, is that to the violence of absence, to the drought of absence that is endemic in the world around Israel, there should be a counter. There should be a people of life, a people of abundance, a people who are practicing renewal. And that actually should be the distinctiveness. The distinctiveness should be the life and the flourishing and the images of abundance that so characterize the people of God. Shouldn't be the flags they wave. It shouldn't be the the signs they hold. It should be the abundance and the life that flows from the people. There should be a counter, a vision of abundance and presence and renewal with the people of God. And for the church, here's the thing, that doesn't exist outside of the drought and violence of absence. It exists within. That's what makes the church so distinct from Israel is that God's presence is now where the people are. And it spreads from within difficult, hard droughtful places, and brings abundance and renewal to the spaces from within. That's what's supposed to be counter to Israel and Egypt, to the church and to the world, the life of renewal. It's what it means to be the people of God. So, Missio, just a couple of questions as we close up. As we think about what is the job of the church and we think about what is Joel calling the people of God to and what he's calling 
Israel too and what that means for the church, the, the question that we have to continue to wrestle with every single week is just do you believe it? Do you trust that God's spirit is in you enough to risk? Right? Peter in Acts chapter 2 says definitively that God has filled his people with authority and power and vocation. Definitively. Paul says that the people are being built into a living temple. Definitively. Like those things are true. Those things are real. The spirit of God is in his people. So do we trust it enough to take some risks? Do we trust it enough to repent and confess? Do we trust it enough to ask for forgiveness? Do we trust it enough to share the story of Jesus? Do we trust it enough to try to open up spaces to be the living temple in our work? Do we trust the Spirit enough to risk? If you do, second question, who are your partners? We really encourage House Church at Missio because we would like, ideally, like, Oh, there's a bunch of partners right there. A bunch of partners who can begin to pray and discern and dream about what it looks like to love your neighborhood or your community or wherever it is that you meet. How do you love this place well? Well, there's partners to dream with. Who are your partners? The people God is building together into a living temple. And then third, where is God calling you? Now, the easy, it is easy to say in this answer, like, oh, everywhere. And that can then become like nowhere. And so just very easily today, yes, he's calling you everywhere. <laughs> yes. But because this is, you know, probably hard for us, just pick one space right now. It's not that I don't believe in you. It's that I don't believe in them. Um, just checking. Because I'm doing this for myself too. We just one space, one space where we're like, okay, here's where God is calling me. Here's where I can find some partners. And here's where I can begin to discern how to practice and, and be the living temple through these spaces. So pick one space, work. Maybe you work at the university. Well, we know there's partners at the university. There's partners here in this community who also work at the university. So find those people and say, how do we do this together? Or maybe it's another job or maybe it's your neighborhood because you know that someone down the street could be a partner with you. Pick one space where you can begin to try to practice to be a living temple. And then, Missio, let's actually practice right here and right now. That's what we do when we come to this table. Practice being a living temple. We trust that God's spirit is in us so that when we come to this table and we break the bread, we take the cup, that God is actually doing something in that moment. We trust it as we come with someone else and maybe we repent or confess to that person. We just come with that person in community. We're trusting that God is doing something in that moment that he meets us. And so would you do that today? Would you come to the table, trust that God is in you and risk by stepping into this space? And would that begin to form in us an imagination for doing the same thing somewhere else? Let's pray. God, thank you that you have, um, you have and you are and continue to form us into your people. Filled with your presence, empowered by your spirit to go and extend your work into all places. 
I feel like that's such a challenging thing to imagine and to even believe. So would you just, as we come to the table and as we sing more and as we enter into prayer, would you help us see it? Help us see how our lives are actually participating in the thing that you're doing. Help us to reframe our jobs and our like, drive to school and our, our relationships with our neighbors. Help us to reframe those in light of the thing you're doing. Help us to see it. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust enough to rest today. In your name we pray. Amen.